Happy Father's Day. Um, we're glad to have uh, Pastor Calvin here. It's been a long time. <laughs> I think we miss you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pastor Calvin, now he retires. He lives in uh, Victoria. Uh, he will be our uh, summer conference uh, speaker. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. How about I pray for you? Thank and you. we pray for uh, before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, sending Pastor Calvin, your faithful servant here, to VCPC. May you uh, give him peace and give him encouragement to speak to us, to speak what you want to speak to us. Um, may you ask us to, in return, to have a receptive heart to receive your message. May all of us that uh, receive your love as well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. It's good to be back again this morning after, I don't know, four or five years or something like that. Um, I, I will tell you, I was here about a year and a half. And can I just tell you very honestly, I had a really fun time here. I really did. I enjoyed it. Some of it was hard work. Some of the stuff we were working through as a church. But I just really enjoyed being here. Enjoyed the people I got to know. And people we just kind of, you know, really kind of shared some good good fun with. And uh, I remember a lot of your faces. Although someone said, you all look the same. You're Chinese. Um, I remember a lot of your faces. I, I remember a lot of names. But if I lost your name, you'll need to just, um, you know, remind me of that again. It's great to come in and see Winsome on the piano this morning. And do you know I was at your wedding? Oh, you did. Do you remember the song that was sung as you walked down the aisle? At last. I remember that. That was good. So I'm also going to lead the adult class after the coffee thing for fathers. I'm going to lead the adult class. And this morning, I'll, be, I'll tell you, we are going to open up some challenging topics for families and churches today in the time in which we live. Topics that are very, very relevant to stuff that we're, we are facing right now as a family, we are facing right now as a church in Victoria. And I'm going to suggest this morning um, that you take notes of some of this stuff, because some of it will come pretty fast and furious. Um, and, that we, and what we do at our adult class time this morning is we discuss the sermon. You don't give it points. Whether you liked it or not, that's not the issue. But we discussed the sermon. What does this mean? What will we take away from it? What does it mean for us as a family? If you're a parent with younger children this morning in the school system, we'll talk about some stuff there. And we'll use that time for Q&A. I don't know if you normally do that. I do. And so I think I, I really felt this morning that's something we could do together. Is that okay with you? Okay? So if you don't like it this morning, you can have a go at me too. I'll survive. Um, whatever. Okay. Now, one of my favorite TV programs um, is Jeopardy. I like Jeopardy. I like the challenge of the questions and answers and all of that kind of stuff. I've been watching the guy that won 2.4 million. Been watching. He was incredible. He really, really was. So I thought this morning we would start by playing one game of Jeopardy. Okay. 
Now you have to remember that the answer comes in the form of a question. You've got to get that right. And there is a prize this morning. The category is Old Testament. Okay? And no cheating. So, no googling, none of that stuff. Alright? So, let's just be fair. And the category is Old Testament. Here's the answer. Because you start with the answer and then the, and that's how it goes. And it says of these people, they understood the times in which they lived. Does anybody know that? There is a prize, by the way. Anybody know that? Old Testament. Anyone? Tommy? So the Israelites? No, that's not... You're a little close, but you're a little ways to go. It says they understood the times in which they lived. That's the only thing we're told about these people in the Bible. Anybody got it? No? Nobody? Okay, does anybody have a birthday real close to today? Nobody? Well, none of you born? <laughs> Who's that? Who's that? Who's got a birthday close? Who is it? Come on down. Come on down. Okay, what you have, well, you don't win Jeopardy, but what you have won is a signed autograph dated copy of this morning's notes. One day, that might be worth something. There you go. You don't need enough. The answer is, the sons of Issachar, you've never heard of them, they're in the book of Chronicles. And the only thing that it tells us about the sons of Issachar, one line, that's all we got. It simply says of them, they understood the times in which they lived. And that's my challenge for you and for me, all of us this morning. What does it mean to understand the times in which we live? And to live like a Christian in the times in which we live. <clears throat> We're going to start this morning in the book of Exodus. So if you do have a Bible or an iPad or whatever you read the Bible from, um, Exodus chapter 32. Um, I'm going to start there. I'm going to move fast and we'll deal with this. In a minute. Exodus is a great book. Obviously the story of Moses. It's a book about the greatest escape story was ever written out of Egypt. The truth of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments. Many of the great themes of Christianity are there, themes like redemption and so on. Now you would think that after following the escape from Egypt, the truth of God and the Decalogue, that the people would remain in some kind of a spiritual high. I mean, we are the people. Instead, we find them struggling. Struggling with the fact that Moses has gone up to the mountain to meet with God and Moses has not returned. So like, what happened to Moses? That left a vacuum of moral and spiritual leadership among the people of Israel. Very brief summary. Going to move fast. You've got to fasten your seatbelts, okay? <clears throat> Exodus 32 opens. Aaron is now in command. And the people start to clamor for a god. And so they bring their jewelry and they melt it down and form an idol. Exodus 32. Moses, uh, sorry, Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, sons, and daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed them and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They were not the only tribe, by the way, who had done this. Fashioning was a tool. 
And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now you obviously realize just how wrong and how perverted that is. But that's what he says to them. The Israelites are turning away at this point from all that has happened to them. The escape and all that this Father God we're singing about has done this morning. The revelation of God. All of that is being turned upside down on its head. Now remember, one of the commandments was, do not make a graven image of God. That's exactly what they were doing. They were doing the very opposite of what God had told them to do. And in verse 7 of Exodus 32, the Lord says to Moses, go down now because your people. That's the first time God says that. All the other times up to this point in, Israel, in, in Exodus, God has said, my people. Now he says, go down and see what your people have done. Um, Father, do you ever come home from work someday? Your spouse says to you, would you go in and speak to your children? You know, somehow at that moment, they're not her children. They're not our children. They are your children. That's exactly what God is saying to Moses. Go down and talk to your children. And so Moses says, Aaron, what's the deal? What's going on? And he gives some excuses. Well, this is classic human nature. Verse 22. He says, you know how prone the people are to evil. Verse 23. I was only doing what the people wanted. That is the curse of the majority. The task of leadership is not just doing what people want. They're doing what God wants and what is right, sorting that out. Verse 24, a classic. This is the lamest excuse of all. We threw all the jewelry into the fire and out jumped the calf. Understand that in fashioning this golden calf, Israel is fashioning a new false religion. It is going against the monotheistic covenant that God had called them to. They're throwing that out. And so Moses, as he comes down, he hears the sound of pagans singing and dancing. And he, he throws and breaks the tablets of the law. He's not losing his temper. The idea really is that the covenant made with God, that is now being broken. And he burns the golden calf. He grinds it up and mixes it with water. And he makes them drink it. So what do we do with this incident? It's not easy. My question is always, how do we bring it to our day our culture in the times in which we live. What is the takeaway message for us this morning? I'm in Victoria. You're in Vancouver, VCBC. What's the takeaway message for us? So this morning I'm going to stretch your minds a bit and ask you to think with me and use your imagination. Here's a question for us. Have we created a golden calf in our time that our culture calls us to worship instead of the transcendent God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have we created our alternative of a golden calf to worship? And let me give you several examples of what that might be and what that might represent in our culture. How we have shaped with the tools of our mind and our thinking. And as a result, our culture has done away with this transcendent God. Now, these are only some tiny scratches on the face of culture today. Most of this was carved in our society from 1960 on. And I think we started 
a, a moral vacuum starting about then. Let me give you some examples. One of the gods of our day is secularism. That's a worldview, a way of looking at life that denies the spiritual. It roots us only in the here and now. It has no long-term view of life. The secular is all we have, the here and now. In secular thinking, there is no place for anything that is spiritual. No place that's got anything to do with God or anything that is sacred is removed. There is no room for anything that's sacred. Secularism loses touch with what is transcendent and eventually loses a reference point from which to judge and evaluate everything. My wife works helping people move and stuff. A lady said to her this week, they're talking about religion, and she lady just said to her this week, there's my religion and my God. She pointed to our exercise equipment and our yoga stuff. That's my God. That's secularism. We see secularism in Canada today. Let me give you some examples. The BC legislature in Victoria, where I am, used to invite a pastor each day when the government was sitting to open the sessions with prayer. I participated in that. You were going to call from the speaker's house. Can you come in this day and there's a space in the parking lot for you and all that kind of stuff. That stopped some years ago. I don't know who decided to stop it. Tried to find out nobody knew. You know that election time, there used to be a Bible that was placed on top of the slot where people put their vote in? That doesn't happen anymore. One of the issues in Quebec today is that secularism is being proposed as a law. Bill 21 in Quebec proposes that anyone in a position of authority or giving service cannot wear symbols of religious conviction. The National Assembly also voted unanimously to remove a large crucifix that's behind the speaker's chair once Bill 21 is passed. The sign of the cross is to go. It seems that every Christmas in Victoria, there's a protest against Christmas decorations, singing Christmas carols, spending money on Christian symbolism, as it's called. I live in a municipality called Saanich. And right now there is a challenge to the tax-exempt status that religious buildings receive because we're a church. And so we don't pay tax on what the property tax would be. But there's going to be a public benefits test, a questionnaire. And here's the test. One question in the test is, public benefits test will demand us to answer the issue of inclusivity. That's the same as what happened to the Christian camps and so on the last several years. One counselor in Sandwich says, if your organization is not inclusive, and you know today what that means, if your organization is not inclusive, I am going to have a tough time supporting you. One Catholic writer calls this the naked public square. What he means by that is that our public world is being stripped of the influence of the sacred and is being left naked. The more our culture presses us towards secularism, it will force those with a spiritual agenda and a mission like us towards what's called privatization. In other words, we are free to sing our hymns, we're free to practice our faith and maintain our beliefs, but only in the sphere of what is personal and private. In other words, 
keep it inside the walls of the church. Our public voice is slowly being silenced. So, maybe for discussion. Where do we see the forces of secularism in British Columbia? In our cities today? What is that doing to Christianity and to our church? Think about that. Here's another cultural God we've built. We'll call it pluralism and its cousin, which is relativism. So in pluralism, you know that there is no truth with a capital T. There's only small truths. And they're all equal. And they're all equally true. In pluralism, no one thought or no one belief or no one ideology is allowed to stand above and against the other thoughts. Canada is officially pluralistic. You need to know that. Christendom is dead. The idea that we have some hold over things. Canada is officially pluralistic. <coughs> if there's a key word in Canadian society in which we like everything to be nice and polite, it's the word tolerance. Tolerance. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of those who don't believe anything. Got that? It's the virtue of those who don't believe in anything. Today, the only absolute is that everything is relative. But when God said, you will have no other gods before me, that was not tolerant. See, there is no room for pluralism in that. Loving God with heart and soul and mind and strength calls for single-mindedness in our culture. And I've been a pastor now for 52 years. It seems to me that in churches we have, lost, we have all but lost the battle for sexuality. And we have lost it on the grounds of relativism and tolerance. So Christian parents who have kids in the BC public school system have to decide what to do with the SOGI curriculum. What do you say against that? Churches must equip Christians and especially Christian parents how to frame their thinking and their language in regard to sexuality in the public school system. The alternative is an unhealthy extremism on both sides. I watched the news a lot several weeks ago in Taiwan. Same-sex marriages were legalized. In Ontario this week, the law against attempting conversion of homosexuals was passed. Conversion therapy is banned. My great fear is that it seems we have almost lost the battle for sacred sexuality in the church. And I say that to you with fear and trembling. I often think, what is there left to identify and to distinguish those who have been to the mountain? and who hold to the sacred truth, which is holy and transcendent. What is there to distinguish us in our sexuality, in its sacredness, and in our marriage? I would say to you as a church, may we continue to hold to the practices of marriage as a covenant union between a man and a woman. As followers of Jesus, we express our sexuality within this covenant union. Following the way of Jesus will be costly for many, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual. 
whether they're single or married. Siegfried Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany and eventually was um, captured and put in Rosenberg, one of the concentration camps. He wrote in a book, The Cost of Discipleship, before he died. He says, when Jesus bids a man, by the way, there he means a person, not just a male, but when Jesus bids a man come and follow him, he bids him come and die. He means that following Jesus will be costly for us in a lot of different ways. So what do we do with pluralism and our relativistic society? What do we do with pragmatism? The most important question used to be, is it true? Now the question is, will it work? And the final question is, how much money will it make? That is the golden calf of consumerism. Triumph as as Technique has triumphed over theology. And technique has become the Trojan horse in the city of God. You understand that the real conflict between Christianity and pragmatism is the conflict between what is right and true and what is simply expedient. That's where the conflict lies. The Holocaust, let me take you back to the 1940s. The Holocaust was a pragmatic solution to the Jewish problem. Eichmann called it the final solution. It simply got the job done in the most efficient way. It was a pragmatic it was pragmatic both in his decisions and quite literally in his execution. The issues of truth and conscience, morality and the value of human life bearing the image of God in the Holocaust were simply ignored. One of the most sobering places that I ever got to visit in just outside Jerusalem was a place called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem in Hebrew means the heroes. And Yad Vashem is a huge memorial to the Holocaust and the victims of the Holocaust. Where this and rail cars that were brought in and pictures and diagrams. There is a there is a synagogue that is dedicated to the memory and a memorial to children. And at the entrance to the door of this synagogue there's this huge, huge pile of little shoes were taken from children. I went in and looked around. And I started to cry. Started to cry. We see pragmatism in the trial of Jesus. He's brought before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas did not ask if Jesus was innocent or guilty whether his actions were right or wrong. Caiaphas is not interested in these moral questions and issues. Caiaphas simply says, it's expedient that one man has to die for the good of the nation. We need somebody today to die. It might as well be you or you. It doesn't really matter. That's his question. You see, when we are reduced to merely what works, we have left truth on the mountainside. We have danced and we have shouted with the majority. It demands courage. It calls for conscience to hear the voice of truth and to obey it in the times in which we live. In his book, I was going to ask, he was a British theologian and philosopher. 
talks about living before the audience of one. And he means this transcendent truth who is God. Living before the truth of God. You know what, folks? And you young people, strong people think for themselves. Strong people create their own moral culture. Strong people are not afraid to stand and to live before the audience of one. Whether it pleases the majority and the rest of the kids in the class or not. Strong people have been to the mountain. Strong people have heard the voice of the Holy God. And they have said, we will obey. <coughs> and someone is now 74. May I say to you, if you're young people in school or up to about maybe 25, young people and young adults, it takes spiritual fortitude, it takes moral guts for young people in you today to maintain a high moral sexual life in the times in which we live. And you are not the first generation to have struggled with that, let me tell you. A while ago, Harry and I were watching a BBC documentary. And it was addressing the subject of STDs, which are sexually transmitted diseases. And the documentary was asking, what age group has the highest percentage of STDs in Canada? And it's not dealing with young people. It was not dealing with young adults. You know what it said? For those in casual relationships who get STDs, the age group that it related to was those who were over 60 and up, who are often living in retirement homes. They may have lost a spouse, and now they're single, and they are not seeing the need for any sexual protection at their age. And that's what they're doing. The over 60 to 65. That's it. That golden calf, like the snake with many heads, has got other heads. Things like hedonism, that's pleasure. Consumerism, that's the pursuit of wealth. Positivism, in which positive thinking is prized today before reflection and meditation. Athleticism, is a new form of asceticism. You got that one? Athleticism is the new form of asceticism. Listen carefully as I bring this in a few minutes to a close. It has always been the responsibility of the people of God in any time in which they live and in every time in which they live from the book of Exodus on in the culture in which we live. It's always been our responsibility to live like the people of God. And nothing less than that will do. So remember, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And their response was, everything that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So Moses wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The summary of all that God was calling them to do. By the way, the Ten Commandments are not given for our society to be better moral people. They're given to live like the people of God in the times in which we live. Now there were times in this history when Israel did not follow God. There were times they did, but there were times they did not. Their life as a nation was like a really a spiritual roller coaster going up and down. 
One period in history they didn't follow God and another period they did. In one time they had lost and lost, they had lost sight of God. They had forgotten his word. And the reason was this. They had lost the book of the law. No one knew where it was. They hadn't seen it for a long time. It's like, you know, the opening of the book of Samuel says this, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. I think you could write that of our life today. The word of the Lord is rare. I was preaching one morning in uh, Lambert, which church where I was at for a long time in Victoria, and just at the end of the service, I don't make kind of appeal things. At the end of the service, a lady came down there. She's around mid-40s. She was smartly dressed. She could have been a lawyer. She could work for the government. I don't know. But she came down the aisle, which I intended to do. And her face was absolutely beaming. She was absolutely just a glow. And I thought, she's figured out who Jesus is. And as she was coming down the aisle, she was saying to me, Tom, I've got it. I've got it. I finally got it. I thought, man, this is great. So she reached me. She said, I figured out after listening to you for several Sundays, this book you keep talking about, this Bible, it's got two parts. I like to go and buy one, but I want to buy the part that Jesus is in. Can you understand that today? This Bible's got two parts. And I want to go and buy the part that Jesus is in. What do I ask for? And says in Samuel, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. It's rare today. Let me take you back in history again. One day in history, a new young king came to the throne of Israel. His name was Josiah. You know, he was eight years old. He was eight years old. And so, as he was starting to reign, he gave money for an offering for the temple, which was a bit of a wreck in those days, for the temple to be repaired. He was going to pay for the craftsmen and the workmen to repair the temple. And in doing this repair work, this is, by the way, in Second Kings, the workmen found a copy of the book of the law. In our language, they found a Bible. They found a copy of the book of the law. It had been lost. Nobody had read it for a while. And so the nation had gone haywire. The nation had gone down the yellow brick road. The words of the Lord had not been read. They had not been obeyed. And so what happens is Josiah finds it. Josiah, this eight-year-old king, reads it. And he turns the people back to walking in the ways of God again. That's what he starts them doing. That's what's going to get them doing. Here's what he says. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of God. He's like, look what I found. Let's read this and see what it says to us. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord to keep his commandments, his statutes, his decrees with all of his heart, all of his soul, thus confirming the word of the covenant written in the book. You confirm it by doing it and obeying it. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant again. Don't miss the point. It was somewhere in the temple, in the ruins of the temple, that the word had become lost. And it was in the temple that the word was found again. So may I ask you this morning, 
Are there any ways in which we have lost the truth of the word in the church? Have we easily moved from the exposition of the word today to entertainment? And if so, we have to rediscover the word of God in the church in our time. What if we were to do that? What if we were to rediscover the word of God and its meaning and its power and its authority in the church today? To renew the words of the covenant and say, this is the kind of people we will be in our time, for our city, for our country. Remember, the Ten Commandments were not given to be the moral law for society, but to be God's people, telling them, challenging them how to stand and live like God's people in the times in which they live. So Josiah rediscovered the word and started renewal and a revival. What would that mean for you? I invite you to stand. So let me just read for you this morning as we close in a moment the words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that were to say to people, this is how you live in the times in which you live. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the life of slavery. No other gods before me. No carved gods of any size, shape, form, of anything, whatever. Whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow to them. Don't serve them. No using the name of God, your God, in curses or silly talk. God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work work six days, do everything you need. But the seventh is holy to God. Honor your father and mother. Only two words in Hebrew, no murder. No murder. We keep the sanctity of life. No adultery. I'd like to expand that a bit. It means we stay within heterosexual marriage and we keep the, the gift of sacred sexuality for within marriage, not before marriage, not outside marriage. No adultery. No stealing. No lies about your neighbor. No lusting after your neighbor's house. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. I would put it this way. Live with contentment. Live with contentment about who we are and what we have. We don't need to be getting other people's stuff. Maybe Jesus summed it all up this way. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your soul. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your mind. 
kind of like the sons of Issachar. They understood the times in which they lived. Do we? You're my all, you're the 
probably sitting at his desk one day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote those words. When Jesus bids a man, a person, young person, male, female, come and follow him. He bids him come and die. And one day he had to walk those words out. Because in Flossenburg camp, he heard his name being called. Prisoner Bonhoeffer. He's let out of his cell, taken to the gallows, and he was hung. What it cost him. Probably won't cost you or me that. But we can yield in other ways. Corn, tolerance, pragmatism, pluralism. What does it mean to say I'm a follower of Jesus? The young people in high school. You'll know the pressure there. Don't give in. Young adults in university. Those over 65. All of us. What does that mean? So this morning, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to just shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance towards you and give you His peace.